What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the JT Sports Podcast. Happy 4th of July. I had a friend last night who asked me, JT, are you going to be live streaming on 4th of July? I told him, hell yeah, I'm going to be live streaming, man. Like, I'm what people call a creature of habit. Once I get into the habit of doing something, if I don't get it done, I'm not going to feel right. And if I didn't live stream today for you guys, I wasn't even going to be able to go to sleep with that on my conscience. And I remember a couple of weeks ago when I wasn't able to live stream due to the Wi-Fi getting knocked out because of a bad thunderstorm we had. I was bored out of my freaking mind and I didn't even know what to do with myself because I was unable to live stream. So I had to come on today and live stream for you guys. And we got a very exciting episode. We're going to be discussing... What if Jimmy Garoppolo never overthrew Emmanuel Sanders in Super Bowl 54? I believe that that play was a career-defining moment for Jimmy Garoppolo. The Seattle Seahawks, I believe, are primed for another Super Bowl run. Why I think Ohio State is the biggest threat to Georgia's three-peat. And how good would Notre Dame football be in 2022 year two under Marcus Freeman? Before we get into it, if you haven't already, make sure that you go ahead, leave a like, and subscribe to the channel. We go live every day, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Listen to the JT Sports Podcast. We're available on all podcasting platforms, but not just on YouTube. You can find us on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from. You can find the JT Sports Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, leave us with a five-star review. We are trying to get to 100 five-star reviews before the start of the college football and NFL season, which is just around the corner. So go ahead, look up the JT Sports Podcast on any podcasting platform. Leave us with a five-star review, or you can go down to the description down below, scroll down a little bit, and there will be the links to the Apple and Spotify versions of the podcast. Jimmy Garoppolo, now the quarterback of the Las Vegas Raiders. It seems like a long time ago when he was starting in the Super Bowl for the 49ers against the Kansas City Chiefs, and a lot of people seem to forget that the 49ers were really close to winning that Super Bowl. They went into the fourth quarter up 20 to 10, and Jimmy Garoppolo was outplaying Patrick Mahomes. Now, I know a lot of people seem to forget that because most of us only remember the team that wins the Super Bowl, but prior to the Kansas City Chiefs coming back and winning that game, Jimmy Garoppolo was playing really good football. And then Patrick Mahomes... Before he ended up turning things around and ended up looking like God on the gridiron for the last eight minutes of that game, he had two interceptions and he wasn't playing all that well. And then all of a sudden in the fourth quarter on the third and 15, he dials up a big completion to Tyreek Hill down the field. And that's when the game started to turn. And then Jimmy Garoppolo on the most important drive of the game, with a minute and 34 left, third and 10, down 20 to 24, he overthrows Emmanuel Sanders. Now, what if Jimmy Garoppolo never overthrew Emmanuel Sanders? That play either results in two things. Emmanuel Sanders scoring a touchdown or the 49ers being inside the 10-yard time with a... 10-yard line, excuse me, with a opportunity to win the game. 
And if Jimmy Garoppolo completes that pass and the 49ers end up scoring a touchdown, regardless if it happened on that play or after, if Kansas City ends up winning the game, nobody's going to blame it on Jimmy Garoppolo. People are going to place the blame on the 49ers defense. And think about this. If the 49ers win the Super Bowl and Jimmy Garoppolo completes that pass to Emmanuel Sanders, the narrative about Jimmy Garoppolo probably will be way different today than what it is right now with Jimmy Garoppolo having overthrown Emmanuel Sanders because prior to that game, most people were considering Jimmy Garoppolo to be a top 12, top 11 quarterback. And then he overthrows Emmanuel Sanders, and then all of a sudden, people start saying, Jimmy Garoppolo isn't good enough to win you a Super Bowl. He's a game manager at best. And although he outplayed Patrick Mahomes for three quarters and eight minutes, you're defined by what you do and the crucial moments of the game. And that's what separates the elite quarterbacks from the average quarterbacks. The great quarterbacks step up and make plays with the game on the line. And that's what Patrick Mahomes did in Super Bowl 54. Meanwhile, Jimmy Garoppolo, although he played a really good game, he wasn't able to make the biggest throw of that game. And that's why the 49ers ultimately lost. But if Jimmy Garoppolo completes that pass... Today, we probably are viewing Jimmy Garoppolo in a different light. You can maybe say that Jimmy Garoppolo still will be viewed as a average to slightly above average quarterback, but you wouldn't be able to take away that big throw if he would have been able to make it. And he would have gotten a lot of praise for being able to make that throw and putting the 49ers in a situation to win the Super Bowl. It's the difference when you have a Super Bowl ring versus not having a Super Bowl ring. The narrative about you is always a little bit biased if you're able to lead your team to the Super Bowl. Look about, look at how people will talk about Joe Flacco. Even though Joe Flacco was never seen as a elite quarterback, the fact that he has a Super Bowl ring makes a lot of people respect Joe Flacco. You never really hear too many people saying Joe Flacco was overrated or he was an average quarterback. Most people, when they talk about Joe Flacco, view him as a above average quarterback during his time playing. You want to know why? Because of that Super Bowl win. Even though football is a team sport, when it comes to how people view quarterbacks, a Super Bowl matters. And if you're able to get one, your perception is drastically shifted. And if Jimmy Garoppolo completes that pass to Emmanuel Sanders, the narrative about him wouldn't be the same today if he was to have that play end up resulting in his favor. Jimmy Garoppolo is not a bad QB. You can win with a Jimmy Garoppolo. It's just that you need a lot of talent around him. But completing that pass would have changed how people view Jimmy Garoppolo's entire career. You got to remember when Jimmy Garoppolo started games for the 49ers, he had a winning record. He was a top 12 quarterback at one point. I know it seems hard to remember that, but Jimmy Garoppolo was not a bum. And if he leads the 49ers to that Super Bowl win, do they trade for Trey Lance? They probably don't. They probably say, you know what? There's no use of us giving up all these picks to draft a quarterback that high in the draft and we already have a QB who's proven to be able to be good enough to get the job done. You don't need elite quarterback play to win a Super Bowl. You just need a quarterback who can take care of the football and come through in the big moments. And if Jimmy Garoppolo hits Emmanuel Sanders down the field, 
the 49ers either score a touchdown on that play or they're in position to end up scoring a touchdown after if Emmanuel Sanders comes short of the goal line. Patrick Mahomes, people seem to forget because Kansas City won that Super Bowl, but he didn't play well until the last eight minutes. He was 19-32. He threw two interceptions until he was able to come alive in the last remaining minutes of the fourth quarter. But Jimmy Garoppolo, it seems like that play has kind of defined his career. Ever since that play, nobody has ever given Jimmy Garoppolo the same praise that they did prior to that Super Bowl happening. Because we all go back to that play and we all talk about how he overthrew Emmanuel Sanders. That was probably the biggest play of the game for the San Francisco 49ers. And that's what separates the great quarterbacks from the average quarterbacks in this league. Your ability to make the big throws in the crucial moments of the game. And that's why Patrick Mahomes is so respected. What if Jimmy Garoppolo wins that game? How would people look at Patrick Mahomes? People would say that Patrick Mahomes was overrated until he would have came through and won another Super Bowl. And you got to remember... After that Super Bowl, when Kansas City went back, they got blown out by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So Jimmy Garoppolo comes through and they win that Super Bowl, then Patrick Mahomes would be 0-2 in the Super Bowl at that point. And many people would start viewing Patrick Mahomes as him being overrated. Despite being massively talented, people would say, oh, well, he doesn't have the Super Bowl. Now, eventually he would have came through and got it done against Philadelphia, but this is a hypothetical situation. Jimmy Garoppolo's career seems to be defined and magnified by that one big incompletion in that game. And you can point to a lot of other reasons why people have the viewpoint that they have on Jimmy Garoppolo, the injuries, still the fact that he's fairly inconsistent, but we always seem to be a little bit more biased and make a little bit more excuses for a quarterback who's able to win a Super Bowl. Once Joe Flacco led the Ravens to the Super Bowl, he was never that good. But yet, Ravens fans still went to war for Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco is still seen in the eyes of many Ravens fans as a legend in their franchise. You cannot take that away from Joe Flacco. When you win a Super Bowl, you're kind of immortalized in that franchise history or in that fan base's eyes. There's nothing that anybody can say about Joe Flacco to Ravens fans. Yes, he's not as talented as Lamar Jackson, but one thing about it is Baltimore Ravens fans are not going to allow you to discredit how crucial Joe Flacco was to that Super Bowl win. Jimmy Garoppolo, he makes that throw to Emmanuel Sanders, and how people view his career is drastically different from how they view it now. Winning Super Bowls in the NFL from a quarterback standpoint is everything when it comes to determining their legacy and where you rank amongst the best quarterbacks in this league. And somebody let me know if I'm wrong right now, but right now I feel like I'm spitting right now. I really do. I rewatched that Super Bowl three times over the last couple of weeks and Jimmy G had outplayed Patrick Mahomes up until the final eight minutes of the fourth quarter, and that's when Mahomes and Kansas City came alive. It was 20 to 10. All of a sudden, it's 24-20. Kansas City is up. That was the biggest moment, at least in my eyes, when it came to how I perceive Jimmy Garoppolo from that point forward. 
after that, I was saying, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo just isn't that dude who's going to be able to come through and make those big plays for you. And then it was evident. Remember when San Francisco went back to the postseason and Jimmy Garoppolo didn't have to throw all those passes? The run game was really effective. And everybody was saying, man, the 49ers are winning in spite of Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy Garoppolo, from a statistical standpoint, he puts up really good numbers. He's a top 12, top 13 quarterback, but it seems like since that play happened and he had that incompletion in the Super Bowl, people make it seem like Jimmy Garoppolo is a bridge gap quarterback. And the bridge gap quarterback is a quarterback that's seen as just a place hoarder at that position until you can find somebody better. But if Jimmy Garoppolo comes through in that Super Bowl for the 49ers, do people still view him as a bridge quarterback? Probably not. The 49ers probably don't go after Trey Lance. The 49ers traded up so much to get Trey Lance because they felt like enabled to win a Super Bowl. You need a superstar quarterback. That's why they went for the guy who, in most people's eyes, had the most upside in that draft class. So Jimmy Garoppolo makes that play, and he proves that he is the guy who can win championships for the 49ers. They don't give up so much for Trey Lance. And maybe he's still the starting QB for San Francisco despite the injuries. Because even if you're injury prone, people are still going to give you the benefit of a doubt because they're going to say, you know, this dude led us to a Super Bowl, man. How dare we throw this guy to the wolves? So you guys let me know how you feel Jimmy Garoppolo's legacy would have been altered if he would have never overthrew Emmanuel Sanders in Super Bowl 54. The Seattle Seahawks, ever since trading away Russell Wilson, have put themselves in a prime position to make another Super Bowl run. Now, I remember back in my early days watching Seattle when they were able to blow out the Denver Broncos and they had that heartbreaking loss to the New England Patriots where they should have ran the ball to Marshawn Lynch or they should have gave the ball to Marshawn Lynch. And ever since that happened, the Seahawks have never been the same. But now, they trade away Russell Wilson, and they have made the most out of the compensation that they got in return for Russell Wilson. I mean, they got Drew Locke, who is a really solid backup. And then you got Noah Fant, one of the more underrated tight ends in the league. You got Shelby Harris, who is a free agent right now. But look at the draft compensation that Seattle got in exchange for Russ. They turned those draft picks into really productive players. Charles Cross was one of the best rookie offensive tackles in the league last season. Their second round pick that they acquired in that trade for 2022 turned into Boye Mafe, who is going to be a really good rotational piece on that Seattle pass rush for years to come. And then when you look at the first round selection that they got from that trade in this year's draft, which ended up resulting in Devon Weatherspoon, you're going to end up having one of the best secondaries in the NFL. You already got Tariq Woolen, and you got Kobe Bryant. Now you got Devon Witherspoon. Who the hell is going to be able to throw on that Seattle Seahawks secondary? It's the Legion of Doom all over again. Now, I don't know if that's what they call it, the Legion of Doom, the Legion of Boom, whatever they used to call it. They may have a 2.0 of that. Then if you can get Jamal Adams finally healthy, imagine how good this defense is going to be when you already look at how good their defensive line is. Seattle's defensive line is really underrated, and they have a really good pass rusher. 
Echenen Nuwosu, Daryl Taylor. They have multiple guys on that defensive line who can get after the quarterback. And you look at the job that general manager John Snyder and head coach Pete Carroll have done with reconstructing and rebuilding this team. This is one of the fastest rebuilds that I can remember in recent memory. Seattle was supposed to be a team that once they traded away Russell Wilson, they were done. It was it for Pete Carroll. John Snyder was done. And then you have Geno Smith, who people rolled off, but he didn't write back who ends up playing at an MVP caliber level last year. And now Seattle seems to have a future at the quarterback position for at least the next three to four years with Geno Smith underneath center. And then you look at Jackson Smith and the Jigba, DK Metcalf, Tyler Lockett. That's going to be one of the best receiving duos or trios in the NFL for the next years to come. Seattle is in a prime position to make another Super Bowl run. Now, I'm not saying that they're going to make another Super Bowl run this season. But for the next four to five years, you know how people in the national media like to use the whole Super Bowl window thing. What team has a great opportunity to win the Super Bowl? I'm not somebody who really likes using that, but I really think in this situation that really applies perfectly to the Seattle Seahawks. Look at the state of the NFC right now. Outside of the 49ers and the Philadelphia Eagles, who else really has a stronghold on the NFC that you expect to be and the running for being able to make it out of the NFC for the foreseeable future. Outside of Philadelphia and the 49ers, the list is pretty thin. Yeah, Dallas is always up there, but they always fall short in the big moments. You look at Seattle, they have probably the most talented young roster in the NFL. Yeah, they do have a couple of veterans sprinkled in there. You bring back Bobby Wagner, who never should have left in the first place. You got Geno Smith, who's in his 30s. But outside of a couple of vets that are up there in age, this is one of the youngest, most talented rosters in the league. With how well Seattle has drafted the last two years, this franchise is set up to be able to compete for championships for the next four to five years. Now, they may not win the Super Bowl this year, but the next couple of years, I'm pretty confident that Pete Carroll and John Snyder, they're going to get them another one. It's crazy how... When Russell Wilson got traded away from Seattle, we thought that this was going to be a franchise that was destined to be in poverty for the next decade because it's hard to find a franchise quarterback. Russell Wilson's just don't grow on trees, and you didn't even draft that guy in the first round. He was a middle-round selection. Do you know how hard it is to come across a guy like Russell Wilson? Russell Wilson's are unicorns. And you look at the fact that Seattle goes from Russell Wilson to Geno Smith Last season, around this time, we were laughing at Seattle's current quarterback position. We were saying they got to choose between Drew Locke and Geno Smith. Yeah, they're destined to have the number one overall selection. And Geno Smith balls out. The Seattle Seahawks right now, when you think about teams who have the most promising futures, not just in the NFC, but in the NFL as a whole, this is a team that has a great opportunity to win one or two Super Bowls Throughout the next couple of years, there's not a team that has a better outlook for the next couple of years in the NFL with the youth and age that they have than Seattle. 
Yeah, the 49ers have a talented roster, but think about how much money they have to allocate to keep guys around, such as Nick Bosa and company. Seattle has a lot of guys who are going to be severely underpaid and are going to be really good for the next three to four years of their career because they have them on rookie deals, which is going to allow them to have more money in free agency to continue to get better at positions that they feel they need to improve at. You got two phenomenal young offensive tackles. Abraham Lucas and Charles Cross could end up being the best offensive tackle duo in the NFL. Do you know how rare it is just to have one good offensive tackle? The Seattle Seahawks potentially could have two, and both of those guys could be the best at their respective positions. You got Zach Charbonnet and this past year's NFL draft out of UCLA. On any other squad, on most squads, he's a starting RB1. And then you couple that with Kenneth Walker, who was the best rookie running back in the league last season. It just goes on and on and on with Seattle. This team is just stacked with talent. Same thing with the Philadelphia Eagles. It doesn't matter if Bobby Wagner retires. They're going to have a guy who's going to be able to step up and replace him because of how well they draft and how well they are at acquiring talent via free agency. Seattle is one of the best teams in the NFL when it comes to player development. DK Metcalf, not too many people had high expectations for him. Everybody thought that DK Metcalf coming out of Ole Miss was a combine warrior. And he has developed into one of the best receivers in the game. Tyler Lockett is still putting up numbers, but when he decides to hang it up, you're going to have JSN. You look at Seattle, this is a team that is in a great position to end up winning multiple Super Bowls. The NFC is not all that stacked. It's not like the AFC where you have a lot of great quarterbacks. And plus, when Geno Smith gets old, they can easily find a replacement for him with all of the resources that they're going to have to find another young quarterback who can step up and replace him. Imagine if they can find a still in the middle round of the draft in next year's NFL draft in 2024. Imagine if Geno Smith retires and then Drew Locke steps up and it's just an easy, uh, easy transition. The Seattle Seahawks have a very bright future when it comes to the Super Bowl window conversation. This is a team that's going to be in the running to compete for championships for at least the next three to five years. Georgia, when you think about who is their biggest threat to hold them back from three-peating this year, some of y'all may say Alabama, but again, there are a lot of people who believe that Alabama is starting to fall off. So if Alabama isn't the team that's the biggest threat to Georgia three-peating this year, who is? I think it's Ohio State. Now, a good amount of people probably will push back against this in the comment section, and they probably are going to say, oh, JT, you're sleeping on Michigan. I'm not sleeping on Michigan. But even though Michigan is a really talented football team, I don't think they have what it takes to be able to beat Georgia. At least right now, when you look at Ohio State, Ohio State came really close to beating Georgia in the semifinal last year. It came down to a missed field goal. When you're trying to beat Georgia, you need three things. You need quarterbacks that can make NFL caliber throws. You need a wide receiving core that can challenge Georgia's secondary. And you got to be able to hold up up front. Ohio State has all three of those things. You look at their quarterback situation right now. Yeah, we don't know who the hell is going to be starting at QB for them this season. Kyle McCord or Devin Brown. But regardless who ends up getting the starting nod, I don't think they're going to be 
too bad with whoever they put on the knee center because first of all you got the best receiving core in college football Marvin Harrison Jr. is that dude you got Emeka Abuka Julian Fleming I mean it's just a wide receiver factory when it comes to Ohio State they just turn out great wide receivers year after year after year after year they're like a they're like a factory it's like they got a conveyor belt of just building and assembling great receivers they just go juju 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 so whoever is going to be throwing the rock this year for the Buckeyes, I don't think they're going to be too bad. They have a really good offensive line. Like you have to be a damn terrible quarterback to be able to be sorry or be awful for Ohio State with the talent that they have on offense this year at the wide receiver position and how good their offensive line is going to be. And when you're going up against Georgia, who still has the best secondary in college football, yeah, they did lose a really solid safety and they did lose Keely Rango, but Keely Keely Ringo was not that good, and Georgia fans will tell you that Keely Ringo was a huge liability at times. You saw what Marvin Harrison Jr. was doing to Keely Ringo last year in the semifinals. So, of course, whoever ends up replacing him, I don't think they can be no worse. You look at Ohio State, how deep they are at receiver, the fact they have a really good offensive line, and what has me really confident that Ohio State can be able to be this big you know, roadblock in the way to Georgia three-peating is how good their defense is going to be this year. Now, we know that this defense underperformed last year, year one under Jim Knowles, but he's going into year two. He's one of the most respected defensive coordinators in the game. We expect him to be able to figure it out. And if he does figure it out this season, then Ohio State is going to have one of the best defenses in college football. They got a really good secondary. You got Denzel Burke, Lathan Ransom, Josh Proctor, and you look at how much talent Georgia has at receiver. This is the most talented receiving core that Georgia has had in recent memory under Kirby Smart. Dominic Lovett, Lad McConkey. Then you also got to worry about Brock Bowers, probably the best tight end in college football history of this defense can improve under Jim Jim Knowles this year. This is going to be a defense that's capable of being able to slow down Georgia's offense. Plus, you got to look at how good they are with their front seven. You have one of the best linebackers in college football and Tommy Eichenberg. You got JTT, which that's just how I pronounce his name because his last name just gives me a whole bunch of complications but if you guys would love to see me try to pronounce it I will but you got to promise me that you're not going to judge me in the comment section JT Timmy see you see I can't even pronounce it but you guys know who I'm talking about this dude was a one-man wrecking crew against Penn State last year so you got JTT you also have Michael Hall. You have a really good interior defensive line. Your offensive line is really good on the interior as well. Ohio State has the perfect team to be able to challenge Georgia. And I know you guys are going to say, well, JT, what about Michigan? Michigan has smashed Ohio State two straight years in a row, and they possibly could look to make it three this year. Yes, they may end up losing to Michigan for a third straight time this year, but Michigan just isn't a great matchup when it comes to Georgia. You want to know why? Because Michigan is like a diet version of Georgia. Georgia is a team that, yeah, they can spread you out and throw the football, but they also are a team that if you want to get down and nasty with them in the trenches, they have no problem getting down and nasty with you up front. And that's what Ohio State is not built on. They're not built on tough, you know, being aggressive, being able to smack you in the mouth up front. 
Ohio State is a team that's going to be able to spread you out and throw the football against you. And when you're trying to beat Georgia, that's what you have to do. You're not going to beat Georgia playing smash mouth football, old school football, because you're playing the Georgia strength with this, their defensive line. If you want to be able to beat Georgia, you got to be able to throw that rock. I'm sorry to all you Michigan fans out there. Like, I love y'all, especially my boy college football with Sam. You know I love you, brother. I don't know if you were listening to this right now, but listen, you look at Michigan, you got a really good chance to be able to beat Ohio State for a third straight year but just like Michigan just seems to be a bad matchup for Ohio State Michigan is a bad matchup for Georgia because they're too alike to Georgia the strength of Michigan football plays to the hands of what Georgia does well which is being able to beat you up up front now Michigan has a really good offensive line and they are really good up front on the defensive line and the offensive line but you have to be able to have receivers that can challenge Georgia's secondary and I just don't think that Michigan has that Ohio State has the best receiving core in college football. Imagine if JSN played last year for Ohio State for the whole entire season. He played in a semifinal game. Do you know how different that game would have been? Marvin Harrison goes down and you got JSN. It it just doesn't stop. Any team that has been able to come close to beating Georgia over the last couple of years has had fantastic performances out of not just their offense, but their quarterback play in particular. Remember going into the SEC championship game in 2021 when Alabama barely managed to survive Auburn in the Iron Bowl? They go into that SEC championship game, and most people don't think they have a chance. And then they end up upsetting Georgia with Bryce Young looking like God on a gridiron. It takes historical performances out of your quarterback position to be able to have a shot at beating Georgia. And I'm not talking about their close losses that they had to Kent State and whoever. I'm talking about Georgia playing you on the biggest stages of college football. Because one thing about Georgia is that you always are going to get their best performance when the lights are the brightest. So don't give me anything about them nearly losing to Kent State or whoever. I'm talking about what has Georgia done with the money on the line. And everything to lose. They came out and they balled. There's not too many times where you can catch Georgia having a off day against some of the best teams in college football. They smacked Tennessee around. And everybody thought that Tennessee was going to end up beating Georgia in that game. Well, not everybody, but there were a good amount of people, myself included, who thought that Tennessee had the recipe to being able to knock off Georgia. And they couldn't get it done. And And they may not be able to get it done for the next couple of years until they can develop and get better when it comes to their offensive personnel against Kirby Smart's defense. We saw Georgia throw around Hendon Hooker like he was a rag doll. And you saw what they did to TCU. There were a lot of y'all who thought that TCU was going to upset Georgia. And I didn't forget that. I didn't forget you all who thought that was going to happen. I told y'all. And I'm telling you the same thing with Michigan. Like, Michigan has a practice day dedicated to just focusing on Georgia. I think they call it anti-Georgia day. And they had something similar to that when they were trying to end their losing streak to Ohio State. Let me tell you something. Michigan better worry about Ohio State. They better worry about Ohio State 
because Ohio State has the best chance at beating Georgia this year and ending their three-peat. Now, we don't know about Alabama. Even if Alabama ends up getting good quarterback play, I still don't know and they have the quarterbacks who are going to be able to make those big-time throws against Georgia's secondary. And I love me Jalen Miro. And even if he does improve as a passer, I don't know if he's going to improve that much to be able to make those NFL-level throws against his Georgia secondary. Plus, I don't think... Alabama's receiving core is as talented as Ohio State. Ohio State really has the perfect formula to being able to slow down Georgia. You saw how close that game came last year. It came down to a missed field goal, dog. The last time we saw Michigan against Georgia, they got dragged through the mud. You want to know why? Because their playing style is too similar to Georgia. Georgia can beat you throwing the football. They can spread you out, but they also can get down and dirty again, and they can can throw those fists with you if you want to try to beat them up front. Michigan, I love me some Jim Harbaugh. I'm the biggest defender of Jim Harbaugh, but you're not going to beat Georgia running the kind of style of offense that Michigan runs. You got to have receivers who are elite, who can challenge Georgia's secondary. Georgia just recruits too many behemoths on the defensive line and on the offensive line. And I know you Michigan fans are going to say, man, JT, we recruit and we develop really well on the interior of the offensive line and the defensive lines. Yes, you do, but nothing like Georgia. And this is exactly what I was telling people who were picking TCU to get the upset. I told them the exact same thing. They were saying, oh, JT, well, TCU beat Michigan, and Michigan has a really good defensive line and offensive line. Let me tell you something. The offensive linemen and the defensive linemen that you're going to see at Georgia are unlike no other. They have defensive linemen who are 300-plus pounds running 4-8-2, fam. Georgia just is a different animal when you face them up front. And I'm trying to tell you Michigan fans this. If you want to be able to knock off Georgia, you're going to have to get better at developing better talent at the wide receiver position. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, you do have good tight ends, but at the end of the day, you have to have good receiving play to challenge Georgia's secondary. You just do. Look at LSU in the SEC championship game. Like, yeah, they lost that game by a bazillion points, but they had a good group of wide receivers. They just didn't have the offensive line. They were getting destroyed up front. Same thing with Tennessee. Same thing with Tennessee. They just couldn't stop Georgia up front. Like, there are plenty of teams that have talented offenses, but they don't have the kind of horses that Ohio State has. Ohio State just has the secret sauce to being able to find a way to get it done against Georgia or at least come close. Receivers, elite quarterback play. Even if you don't have confidence in Kyle McCord or Devin Brown, you know that Ryan Day is really good at quarterback development. Look what he did with C.J. Stroud. I remember C.J. Stroud's first start not too long ago against Minnesota when he got off to a slow start. All of those Ohio State Buckeye fans who were saying, man, this dude ain't it. This dude trash. This dude needs to get benched. And then C.J. Stroud ends up becoming a second overall pick. Funny how that goes. You just got to trust Ryan Day, man. Like, Ryan Day, although this dude may be overrated in a lot of people's eyes, this dude knows his stuff when it comes to offense and getting effective quarterback play. So I'm not worried about the quarterbacks that Ohio State has on their roster. Yes, Michigan returns more starters. They have a really talented offense. You got J.J. McCarthy, one of the best QBs, coming back into college football this year, the most talented quarterback that Jim Harbaugh has ever had. But you're going to need more 
at the skill position if you want to be able to knock off Georgia. You're not going to be able to knock off Georgia playing smash mouth football in a style of football that Michigan plays. Georgia is just a different animal. You got to be able to be balanced. You have to be able to beat Georgia on the perimeter. I know you Michigan fans are going to get upset and you're going to come up with a lot of counterpoints, but at the end of the day, you still have to have great receiver play if you want to be able to beat Georgia. Michigan had a really good game against Ohio State the last two times. It's just that Ohio State just isn't a good matchup for Michigan right now. But when you look at Michigan versus Georgia, I just don't think they're a good matchup for Georgia. And I think that Ohio State is the biggest threat to Georgia's three-peat. They have they have a good amount of five and four stars on their roster. I don't really remember their blue chip ratio to be exact, but I know that they definitely have to be top three. They're definitely up there. They have one of the most talented teams every single season, according to 247 Sports Team Tally Composite Rankings. Ohio State has everything that you need to be able to take down Georgia. And then you're going to have a fully healthy Travion Henderson this year. And then you got Mayan Williams. I mean, if they got to get down and dirty in the trenches, they can do it also. There's nothing that Ohio State can't do that Michigan can do. There are a lot of things that Ohio State can do that Michigan can't. And one of those is being able to throw the football, being able to air you out to win games. Michigan couldn't do that. We saw what happened when they went down against TCU and J.J. McCarthy was asked to throw the football a little bit more than what he had been asked during the regular season. Michigan is a team that's built for smash mouth football. They're a team that wants to get down and dirty with you up front, and you aren't going to beat Georgia with that kind of playing style. You have to be able to have success throwing the football with receivers that are able to challenge and push Georgia's secondary. And if not, you're just playing into the strength of Georgia, which is them being able to maul you up front on their offensive line and on their defensive lines. Like Georgia, the athletes that they recruit on the defensive line and on the offensive line are like no other. I don't care if Michigan's bringing in the same amount of talent obviously they're not bringing in the same caliber players when's the last time Michigan had a freak athlete that was 300 plus running a 482 this is a Georgia program that has put what three interior defensive linemen in the first round over the last couple of years Devontae Wyatt Jalen Carter Jordan Davis this is a different caliber of athlete that Georgia just recruits man like they just got the cheat codes when it comes to finding freak athletes up front Broderick Jones I mean, come on, like, these dudes are recruiting monsters like Michigan. They recruit some really talented players up front, but they don't have big boys who are moving like Georgia. Ohio State just is a better matchup for Georgia compared to Michigan. And I know you Michigan fans are going to get upset with this. I know if you're an Ohio State fan, you're loving it. You're loving everything that you're hearing right now. You're saying, JT, you're preaching facts. But until Michigan can get better at developing skill position players at the wide receiver position, I don't think they're going to be able to beat Georgia, which is why I think that Ohio State is the biggest threat to Georgia three-peating this year. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of you Georgia fans listening to this right now, you give credit where credit is due. Ohio State played a fantastic the game against you they did you can't do nothing but give them the props for that everybody called that ohio state versus georgia semifinals game the national championship game even though that it wasn't but everybody was pretty confident that the winner of that game was going to end up being the national champion i think the buckeyes are the biggest threat 
and George's way to three-peating this year. And I know there's going to be people who disagree with that. I know you're going to have some Tennessee fans out there. I know you're going to have the Bama fans of the world and the Michigan fans of the world disagreeing, but I really think that Ohio State, out of all the teams in college football this year who have a great chance of being able to beat Georgia, I think Ohio State has the best chance to beat Georgia and keep them from three-peating. Things got off really, really rocky for Marcus Freeman year one at Notre Dame. And yeah, most of us expected them to lose to Ohio State. They did keep that game a little bit closer than what most people expected it to be. Most people thought that it was going to be a bloodbath. We thought that it was going to be 47-10. But Notre Dame hung around to their credit. And then after that, things got really, really scary for Notre Dame up there, man. They got upset. Barb Marshall, it was some really dark times. And I was listening to a recent interview that Marcus Freeman did with the Pivot Podcast with Fred Taylor, Shannon Crowder, and Ryan Clark. And he said that after they lost that game to Marshall, you know, things were a little bit hard. But he didn't lose the locker room. And Notre Dame bounced back in a major way. They went 6-1 and one to end the season. They had a big upset win over Clemson. Also, Syracuse the week before that. They beat South Carolina in the tax Bowl. And they finished the season with a 9-4 record. So we go into year two of the Marcus Freeman era at Notre Dame. What can we expect out of the Fighting Irish this season? Is this a team that some people are overlooking that could end up being a dark horse college football playoff contender. I think they have the 10th or their 11 best odds to win the national championship this year. You add Sam Howell in the transfer portal, who is going to be the most talented quarterback that Notre Dame has had in recent memory. And you look at how good their offensive line is. They have probably the best offensive line in all of college football, either them or Michigan. And you look at the fact that you have Joe Ard, Blake Fisher, which is probably the most talented offensive tackle duo in the nation. And then you have a wide receiver room that although there's a good amount of unproven talent, they do have a lot of talent. And a wide receiver that I really like this year to have a breakout season is Jaden Thomas. He was highly touted when he was coming out of high school. He has great athleticism and great size. I think he reminds me a lot of Chase Claypool in a sense. And then you have a lot of talent at the running back position. Your leading rusher last year was averaging over 5.9 yards per carry. He had 11 touchdowns, and he's running behind the best offensive line in college football this year. He should be even better this season. You're really good on the defensive side of the football. Your defensive line has a lot of talent, a lot of depth. But this secondary can be really, really fantastic for Notre Dame this year. Cornerback Cam Hart. Benjamin Morrison, who had six interceptions last year, five pass breakups. He's one of the best cornerbacks in college football this year. You got a lot of good depth at that position. Your safety position is also talented, although if you have one of your starting safeties that goes down to an injury, you're probably going to have some concerns when it comes to depth after those guys. But this is one of the most talented teams that Notre Dame has put on the field in recent memory. And I know we seem to say this about Notre Dame every single season. Hell, I said it last year. I thought that Tyler Buckner was going to be the dude, but obviously he wasn't. But you have a proven commodity at quarterback in Sam Hartman. This was somebody who was the best quarterback in the ACC during his last couple of seasons, being the starting quarterback for the Demon Deacons. 
And you look at the fact that now you're going to give him one of the best offensive lines in college football and a better group of receivers to throw the football to. I think that Marcus Freeman has learned from his earlier mistakes that he made the first couple of games throughout last year's season. He even said that on the pivot, there were some things that he had to change, that he had to adapt. But one positive thing about that is that he never lost the locker room. You lose to a school like Marshall, and you're like the Notre Dames of the world, you don't bounce back from that. You saw what happened to Texas A&M when they lost to Appalachian State. Their season just fell off the rails, but that didn't happen to Marcus Freeman. And this dude is a fantastic recruiter, and this dude is a fantastic motivator of all of the players that play under him. These players for Notre Dame, they love Marcus Freeman. They go to war for Marcus Freeman. When Marcus Freeman was named the full-time head coach of Notre Dame football after Brian Kelly departed for LSU, this locker room got extremely happy. They love Marcus Freeman, and they play hard for this dude. And you look at how much talent they have on this Notre Dame team, I think he's going to be able to maximize it. And when you look at their schedule, it is a really difficult schedule. So if Notre Dame ends up being in the college football playoff conversation, I don't want to hear none of that nonsense that y'all stay talking about Notre Dame. Oh, they don't play nobody, JT. Oh, they're unproven. They got a cupcake schedule. Like, stop it. Like, Notre Dame has one of the toughest schedules in college football this year. Like, yeah, their first two games should be cakewalks. You're playing Navy. You got to play Tennessee State. But after that, you're going on the road against NC State. That's no pushover. That's the team that's a lot better than what a lot of people give them credit for. Then you got to play a Central Michigan. Yeah, they're not good, but okay. You should go into that game against Ohio State 3-0. and And then Ohio State, that's going to be a really big challenge for Notre Dame this year because I think that Notre Dame is going to end up losing that game because I think that Ohio State is the second most talented team in college football and I think that they have the best chance of being able to stop Georgia from three-peating so you might not be able to win that game but you do have a chance to win it because you do have Sam Hartman I think a large reason why you struggled against Ohio State last year was due to the fact that you didn't have great quarterback play. And anytime you have a guy of Sam Hartman's caliber, you're always going to have a chance to win these big games against schools such as Ohio State. And I don't think Notre Dame has ever had a quarterback that's been as talented as Sam Hartman in recent memory. Under Brian Kelly, they were going to the national championship with um, Deshaun Goldson, I believe his name was. And then you had Ian Book in the college football semifinals. Like, those guys were decent. Ian Book was better than Deshaun Goldson or Everett Goldson. I don't remember what his name was. I think it was Deshaun Goldson or Everett Goldson. But whatever, Sam Hartman is a way better quarterback than what you've had going into big games of the magnitude that you're going to be going into this season against Ohio State. Then you got to go on the road and face Duke. Yeah, you're more talented than Duke on paper, but like we saw last year, Duke is no team that you should just be overlooking anymore. Like, Duke is no longer just a basketball school. This is a football and basketball school now, which is crazy to say, but me being a Miami Hurricane fan, I just got to go ahead and give credit to Duke. I got to stop making the jokes about them just being a basketball school. They are now a football school and you shouldn't take them lightly and then you got to play Louisville like yeah you got a better roster than Louisville on paper but you can't sleep on Jeff Brom do you know what they used to call Jeff Brom during his time at Purdue this dude's nickname was the upset master there's a reason why you get a nickname for that because he always had Purdue ready to play in the big games against the best teams 
And then you got to play USC with Caleb Williams, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner who could very well end up winning that thing again this year. And then coming off your bye, you got to play Clemson, which is your last biggest test of the season. And then you got Wake Forest, Stanford on the road. So I think my ceiling for Notre Dame this year has to be 10 wins. Maybe potentially more, but I do think that they're going to have two losses during this stretch. It's either going to be to Ohio State or Clemson, or it's either going to be to Ohio State or USC or Ohio State or Louisville. I think they're going to end up losing a game to at least one of those other teams not named Ohio State. But my floor for Notre Dame is probably going to be eight wins. So I have to give you a record prediction for Notre Dame this year. I probably say they end up winning nine games this year. I don't really know exactly where those losses are going to come from, but I definitely do have that Ohio State game locked in as a L. Now, you very well could win that game. I don't feel the same way about Notre Dame going into that Ohio State game like I did last year. Like, I felt like Notre Dame didn't have a chance at all. I know it's college football. I know that's an ignorant statement to say that no team has a chance because you know the mantra every single Saturday, anything is capable of happening. But I feel like you have a better chance against Notre Dame this season with Sam Hartman at quarterback than what you did last year having Tyler Buckner out there and Drew Pine. So you could end up upsetting them, which I think the chances are pretty small. But then you got some tough games against Duke, Louisville on the road. You got to play Clemson on the road. You got USC at home, which is a winnable game. But I do think that they end up having a couple of L's here and there. So I have the map between 9 and 10 wins. I'll probably go 9, but I very well could see them winning 10 games. But I do think that this is a team that definitely could be in the conversation to make a New Year's 6 bowl game. And maybe they could end up going undefeated and making it to the college football playoffs. That most definitely is possible. We know that they are going to be really good defensively. USC doesn't play great defense. And plus their secondary matches up very well against Clemson's um, wide receiving core. Clemson's wide receivers aren't really all that great. Like, yeah, they have some highly talented guys that they've gotten out of high school, but you still don't know how good the offensive line is going to be. The offensive line has been a struggle for them. They got Garrett Riley as their OC, but we still don't know how much talent they're going to have to work with at the receiver position. They haven't really done a great job developing that side of the football, at least when it comes to the skill position, that receiver. And their offensive line still is a little shaky. So you definitely could end up beating them, even though it's going to be a tough hostile environment playing them on the road but you got to remember that Sam Hartman has a lot of experience this isn't a first year starter at QB this is somebody who's played on the road in hostile environments so you're not going into that game with inexperience really being a problem even though you're playing them at home you're going to have a quarterback that's going to be able to manage that tough crowd noise so I think Notre Dame went somewhere between 9 or 10 games but you guys let me know how good you guys think Notre Dame football is going to be in 2023 This is it for this episode of the JT Sports Podcast. I appreciate you guys for tuning in for this July 4th episode. Like I was telling you guys before we started, I'm a creature of habit. Once I get into the habit of doing things, if something goes wrong, then my day ends up being thrown off. It ends up being really weird. I just couldn't let this day go by and not live stream because it just doesn't really sit well with me. And there are a lot of my friends who are saying, man, JT, like, you still finna live stream on a holiday? Like, hell yeah, like, 
anybody else live streaming, I'm pretty sure some of y'all that's tuned in right now probably had nothing else to do. You probably were a little bit bored. You probably wanted to listen to some football. So I'm glad that you guys took time out of your July 4th holiday to spend with me to listen to this episode of the podcast. And even if you aren't tuned in live, if you end up listening to this episode after it airs, I still appreciate you for tuning in. Make sure that if you enjoy that you leave a five-star review on the podcast. We're really close to getting a hundred five-star reviews on Apple. So make sure that you go ahead, type in the JT Sports Podcast. Give us a five-star review. Old Gore down to the description down below and rate us five stars on Apple and Spotify. And I will see you guys tomorrow with another episode of the JT Sports Podcast.